However, standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. After he threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. Right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. So I nudged her, she didn't respond. I was sitting out in my front yard, and they told me that uh, she didn't make it. If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? (laughs) Well, George Clooney, of course. (laughs) Who else could it be? You know, I think it would take probably $100,000 at least to bring us in for the Hall of Fame. Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You can't, you can't even show them on TV because they're so busy humping each other that you can't <laughs> even show them on TV. Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Primetime with Sean Mooney. Just let that set in. It is the holiday season. And don't you love that music? Here, listen. Come on, listen up now. Yeah, see? Now you're getting in the mood, uh, if you haven't already, because you're with Mooney, and you're talking about the holidays, and it's uh, Christmas time, right? And we've had a tremendous year, 2018. I hope yours has been good. And what better way to start to wrap it up than with primetime with Sean Mooney? And coming off a, a tremendous episode with Bugsy McGraw. I hope you enjoyed that one. I certainly did because uh, it was one of those episodes where I learned a lot. And that's what these are all about. It's, it's about uh, you know hearing stories and, and uh, learning more about the history of professional wrestling. If uh, you really like professional wrestling, it, it is really awesome to uh, learn more about the beginnings. And Bugsy McGraw, with two Gs, by the way, uh, is certainly what you'd call uh, old school. Old school. 1967 is when he started his career. And, of course, professional wrestling was around uh, before then. But it was a really unique time in the business because of, uh, at that uh, point in time in the history of the business, uh, promoters, and uh, they ran everything, and there were several of them. And they divided the United States and Canada and uh, other parts of the world, too, uh, into what you describe as territories, and they ran it all. And they, uh, you know, did, uh, they cooperated together. They exchanged talent. They respected each other's boundaries. And then came along man, uh, uh, came a man named uh, Vincent K. McMahon. And he changed it all forever. But uh, Bugsy was there uh, during that period of time when these promoters were running things and, uh, you know, wrestled many of the greats. Uh, Dusty Rhodes and people like Wahoo McDaniel and Bruiser Brody. Uh, I really hope that you enjoyed uh, hearing about that. And uh, as I'm going to be telling you uh, coming up here, we've got uh, we're going to be do- embracing more of this uh, these kinds of podcasts where we're we're gonna we're gonna have uh, themed shows where you know we'll get more into the history of professional wrestling. Uh, besides all the great guests from the golden era, which of course we'll continue to have, but uh, also as the show has evolved, uh, we've you know we've we've expanded the palette, so to speak. And that's what we're going to be doing in 2019. And, uh, you know, had a great discussion today um, with our producer, Casey Jerome Beck, and, of course, Evan Polisher, who does all of our social media. And we're really, really, really excited about the new year coming up because we have a lot of ideas and we're uh, just kind of uh, hammering them out. But believe me, you're going to love all of the, 
the uh, things that we have in mind, and you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. One of those things is they have finally talked to me into doing a uh, Patreon uh, membership. I mean, we, they've been uh, trying to get me to do this since really the beginning of the year because I know a lot of these podcasts do it. But I said, if, you know, if we're going to do it, we, whenever we do something like what we did with the, the uh, Crowdcast, uh, you know, mini pay-per-views, uh, if you will, uh, I wanted them to be right. And we, we're still got, uh, you know, big plans to uh, in the new year with those. I know a lot of people have been asking about when the next one's going to be. But, uh, you know, as I've talked about before, I think we've reached that level to take it to the next one. And we're going to do that with these uh, Crowdcast broadcasts. And I've got a, a special one on the works. And, uh, you know, it's, gonna, it's, it's taking some um, behind-the-scenes work to make it happen. I'm going to leave it at that. But, uh, you know, that's going to be a regular part of what we're doing. And uh, if you join us on uh, Patreon, uh, you're going to uh, be a big part of that. Uh, but uh, I'll have more details next week. Uh, next week, we're going to bring you our end-of-the-year special, our best of 2018. And uh, as always, you guys, uh, you're you know, you're why we do this, uh, our listeners. So you, I, we've always wanted you to be a big part of it. And uh, we want to hear uh, about your favorite episodes that you've uh, heard this year. So email me and let me know uh, at primetimemooney at gmail.com. That's primetimemooney at gmail.com. Tell me uh, uh, what your favorite episode or episodes were. And we'll be sure to include uh, some of the conversation from those. We had a lot of fun with this last year. And we also had a really good time with the Q&A, so we're going to bring that back uh, to be included in this uh, best of. And so include some questions on there. And you can, um, you can in, uh, you know, email me, of course, with those questions at uh, primetimemooney at gmail.com. But also you can you know, do it through Twitter if you'd like, uh, at primetimemooney. You know, we, uh, we're very uh, responsive there. So uh, get the questions to us and also tell us, uh, you know, who you'd like to hear back from on the, uh, the conversations from the podcast this year. Uh, we're going to wrap up, uh, at least for this Christmas episode, because it's been a very busy week, a lot going on. And um, we were just going to take it off. But, I, you know, I, I, we, we want to keep bringing you new, uh, new material every week. And we've had this episode, and I, I didn't even realize we did, from when we uh, attempted uh, to go into the premium level. And then, uh, you know, of course, we were able to come back and give it away for free. We started to get a lot more sponsors, and we've been able to keep that going. And uh, so we have this episode with B. Brian Blair. And I have to tell you, it is one of my all-time favorite episodes that we've ever done. And it, it was kind of a shame because uh, at the time, you know, we were, it was behind the wall, uh, so to speak, and we didn't have that many people. So not many people have heard this episode. And we had plans that maybe we'll put it up on YouTube. But uh, I thought this week would be great to um, you know put it out there. We will we'll put it on YouTube. But I thought, let's, let's do it this week. So instead of skipping a week, that we'll have something for folks to listen to. So um, that's, what we're gonna, that's what you're going to be hearing from, B. Brian Blair. And it was a, uh, like I said, I loved the episode because, you know, you go in and uh, I knew... B. Brian Blair, when he was with the WWF, and of course with Jump and Jim Brunzel, uh, the Killer Bees, you know the tag team. Uh, but you never, uh, you never know what to expect. And this one kind of knocked me on my uh, my keister because uh, you know uh, Brian had so many great stories. Uh, among them, uh, many of you may know, you uh, may remember Mike McGurk, and he was briefly married to her. 
she was a, a ring announcer for the WWF, but prior to that, you know, well, you know before that, you know, she is the daughter of Leroy McGurk. And uh, Brian has some great stories. I, I mean, I'll get kind of the chaser. I mean, that's one point where Leroy almost shot uh, B. Brian Blair. He almost didn't make it to the WWF and uh, would not be around today. And that's just one of the stories. And also uh, about his his journey even to getting into the ring. So uh, I'm really happy to finally bring this uh, episode to you. And I think you're, you're going to love it. So what do you say? Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. And here's a gift. Be Brian Blair. Ding, ding, ding. Well, my guest this week was part of one of the most popular tag teams in the WWF during that golden era. You know which one I'm talking about. It's one we're always talking about in the 80s and 90s. Smack dab in the middle of the WWF's rise all over the world from 1985 to 1988. Uh, what a tremendous time. And there was always a lot of uh, buzz about this dynamic duo. Yes, I went there. Because uh, <laughs> joining me on primetime is none other than B. Brian Blair, one half of the tag team, the Killer Bees. And of course. Oh, yes. Well, let me just say this, Mr. Sean Moody. I am so excited about being on primetime, and you talked about being all around the world and that's true you know i've been from maine to spain and i've uh, spread pollen from new york to holland and that's how we actually created the swarm you know i've been from ocean to ocean from coast to coast i've been north south east and west and today i'm especially excited to be your guest you still got it you still got it brian uh it's like it was yesterday isn't it uh, kind of feels that way Oh, yes, 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 yes. I remember just uh, talking about Hazel's Honey Hut and running all around the world and flapping the wings and buzzing all over. Just seems like uh, the older I get, the more it's happening again. And so <laughs> I'm glad that people appreciate the legends. Yeah, you know, it, it is happening again. And I don't know when you felt, uh, you know, this this new resurgence. Uh, but if, uh, certainly the, the WWE Network has helped us. But uh, you know, what do you think it is about that period of time? And I'm not, uh, you know, there, there's certainly, uh, you know, some tremendous wrestling fans that love, uh, you know, maybe the early 2000s and all. But that was just a special time. We're talking 80s and 90s. And you run into these people all the time. What do you think it was about that time that they hold so dear? Because that's when wrestling went mainstream. If you recall all the territories, you know, everybody came from the territories. You know, I worked for Vince McMahon Sr. Right. on two different occasions for yeah. WWWF, and uh, Vince Jr. was an announcer. Uh -huh. And uh, he was actually a good announcer. He worked well with uh, Lord uh, Alfred Hayes and Ray Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And, uh, oh, let's not forget that other Jesse. great commentary, Pat Patterson. And Pat Patterson <laughs> <laughs> I had my first match with Pat Patterson. Yeah. Him and Ivan Koloff in a tag match. Yeah. But uh, I think that the whole dynamics of wrestling changed, and that era became hot when we when uh, rock and wrestling came along. The Cindy Lauper uh, age uh, after WrestleMania one. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but that was George Scott's brainchild, uh, who happened to be Vince's booker. He came up with the name WrestleMania at the time. Yeah. At the time. And um, so uh, I came in uh, right after WrestleMania one. I got a call from Hogan and I was a Florida heavyweight champion. And um, 
I wanted to come to back to uh, WWF at the time, WWE, and yeah. uh, I was just waiting for the right time. And Vince wanted to create a, a, a tag team, uh, a group to be a focal point to help build the uh, brand. And um, so there was a lot of great tag teams during that era. And um, Hogan called uh, me and asked me if I knew Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. And I said, well, I heard of him with the High Flyers and uh, Greg Gagne. And he said, yeah, well, he's coming in and uh, Vince wants uh, to tag you guys up because you know Vince already knew me and we had right. a good report. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and that one of the, for some reason, Vince and, Jimmy got along like oil and water and uh, always have Vince senior. But, or you're talking junior. Vince junior. Okay. Vince junior. And uh, I've always gotten along great with Vince junior. I, I respect him. I appreciate what he does for what the entire organization does for the cauliflower alley club, which is my passion. Right. And um, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's never really uh, cheated me. He was good when I was at WrestleMania five, I had given my notice. I did WrestleMania two, WrestleMania three, WrestleMania four, WrestleMania five, uh, gave my notice uh, a few weeks earlier. He still told me to come and uh, he knew I didn't want to do a job because I was uncertain what I was going to do, where I was going to go. So he paid me anyway and didn't have me work. And uh, I thought, wow, what a class act. That was really nice. To- well, you know, uh, Brian, I want to get into all that. I, we're we're going to get to the, your, your, your arrival in the WWF, WWE. But I really think we need to uh, lay some of the foundation here so people really understand your journey. Um, I know that I, I, you were born in, in Gary, Indiana, right? And uh, was it shortly after that you arrived in Florida? I was in fifth grade. I was like 10 and a half yeah. years old. And, and what prompted uh, that move? I mean, uh, well, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Gary, Indiana, you know, I don't know if you know about Gary, but it's kind of like the armpit of the United States. And Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not, um, actually, my dad and I went there about uh, 10 years ago at my grandfather's funeral. Um, Looks more than that now, now that I think of it, 10 years ago, it was 1987. Um, But uh, time flies, 30 years ago. Uh, And uh, the neighborhood was nicer then than it was when we left it. But, um, you know, when I grew up, uh, there was one other white family on my block and the rest were uh african-american or hispanic uh-huh. so i grew up as a real minority and you know when that we didn't know we were colorblind as kids yeah i was I mean, gonna say you were yeah you just probably didn't know there was a difference yeah we didn't i mean it was this, it was the same but my parents for some reason wanted to get wanted to get i have uh, four younger siblings and wanted to get wanted us to leave gary and since he was a, a union carpenter he had an opportunity here in uh, Hillsborough County where Tampa is. Hillsborough County has uh, three cities, Temple Terrace, Plant City, and Tampa, Florida. Um, And um, we wound up in Tampa and uh, he started working for the union. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got here. Yeah. What was Tampa like back then? And you're uh, just about my age. So we're talking, you said you got there in fifth grade. So we're talking what uh, late '60s, early '70s. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere right in there. Yeah. And um, uh, I have been '71. Um, Tampa was uh, a small city back then. All they had was really was wrestling. There was no Buccaneers. There were yeah. no Rays. There were no Lightning. You know, it was a it was a great small town, and it's still a small big town. Um, uh-huh. uh, 
Hillsborough County is like the 32nd largest county in the United States of America. It's 1,078.2 square miles, which is about the size of Rhode Island, which is just a little over 1,200 square miles. And at the population, 1.3 million people, uh, that's more people than are in 10 other states. So it's a, it's a big county. And yeah. uh, later on, I ran for county commission countywide and won. And we lost the first time, won the second time, lost by uh, four-tenths of a point the first time to the top politician in the area. But uh, uh, growing up uh, in, in Tampa was, uh, it was just really good to me. Everybody was friendly. Everybody was nice. And it's, and it's still pretty much that way. I mean, we live in a great neighborhood, very little crime, very mm-hmm. everybody's friendly to each other. Neighbors still get the other person's paper and take the other person's trash can up if they're not home or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just things like that. So, yeah. And I, I, I've enjoyed working in the community. You know, I've coached baseball for 20 seasons, um, coached football for 10 seasons, um, uh, spoken over half the schools in Hillsborough County, which is a lot of schools. Um, I'm a registered speaker for, um, for our, um, uh, serve, which is, uh, the speakers, uh, educational, um, forum. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's good to give back. Uh, and I love giving back to the community and now I'm yeah, giving so back to the wrestling business. Yeah. So it's pretty much, uh, I mean, that's hometown for you. Uh, uh, even though maybe you arrived there in the fifth grade. So, I mean, Tampa has been a part of you since you were a kid. And you see the first thing you mentioned that's that we had wrestling, uh, what are your early memories of that? Was it something you shared with your father or, uh, maybe, uh, other siblings? When did that uh, start becoming part of your life? Well, it's uh, you know that's a great uh, question, Sean, and it's a very important question in my life because at the age of thirteen, um, my I didn't see my dad around very much, and I knew that um, the union had gone on strike and mm-hmm. he was out of work, and never really saw my parents argue in front of me, but my dad wasn't around, and I kept asking my mom, where's dad at? And she said, well, he's working at other places and stuff like that, and all of a sudden, we started getting boxes of spam, and uh, mm-hmm. boxes that had spam, and um, uh, what do you call that? Um, um, the so powdered like milk, powdered eggs. Like, like handout food. Yeah, like handout food. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, we're getting food stamps, and I, I, no, no meat or anything. And I'm, yeah. I'm really getting into sports now and starting to work out. And then, um, right around that time, I turn on the TV, WTOG channel 44, and there's Gordon Solis talking and I see Jack Briscoe doing an interview and man, I was just like hooked on wrestling. After yeah. that. I watched well, just one episode of wrestling and that was it. I was hooked. Yeah. And that's, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a wrestler. <laughs> so so um, you, you kind of, you talk about, uh, it sounds like tough times. Um, like was your father estranged in the family or is he just out working, trying to make a living? What was, what was going on and did wrestling help you get through it? Uh, yeah, I was an amateur wrestler. I've, I've played sports. I won the first, uh, Hillsborough County junior high school championship. And, um, uh, that was in ninth grade. Some people call it middle school now, but it was junior high then. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, so I, I just got into sports since my dad wasn't around and, um, just used to always, uh, try to get money, earn a little money. I started working when I was 13, I had a paper route then I uh, eventually sold sodas in the Tampa stadium and, uh, watched Mr. Wonderful Paul Warndorf number 40 play for the Tampa Spartans and 
dreamed about playing football there. Freddie Solomon, who was a tremendous quarterback. He's second in receiving yards uh, uh, for the San Francisco 49ers, only next to Jerry Rice. And mm-hmm. so Freddie Solomon was a tremendous athlete. But, you know, it was difficult not seeing my dad. And, you know, he's one of my best friends now. He, probably my my best friend, you know, as uh-huh. a dad. Um, problem is I have to go play poker all the time with him to see him. And, uh, <laughs> and you're not a good poker player? <laughs> I'm so-so, you know. Uh, uh, not, not nearly as good as my son Bradley, but uh, yeah. uh, um, he uh, he's really good, my dad. And, like, he'll take $60 to the Hard Rock um, six days a week, and he's hit a $50,000 bad beat. He's won I don't know how many um, high hands were $777 sitting there. This little yeah. 60 bucks, but, uh, that's what he enjoys. And, uh, he's a good, uh, level headed guy who, you know, taught me to be humble and, um, always told me to, you know, be myself and don't let people change who I am and just be humble. And always remember that I've got uh, two ears and one mouth and gave me great advice like that, that, uh, you know, kind of helped me in the re- wrestling industry actually, because, you know, everything's political. Yeah. Um, well, you, but you talk about that period of time. Um, I got, I don't know if there was a separation, you know, where you say you didn't get to see him a lot, but I know you were a tremendous athlete at Hillsborough, uh, Hillsborough County high school. Uh, I know you, um, participate in all, I, I don't know what sport didn't you, uh, participate in. Was well, that I lettered, I, I lettered in four sports. I, yeah. I lettered in four sports, which is still a record here. Um, <laughs> I lettered in baseball, track and field, wrestling and football. Um, all my freshman year and uh, because I didn't want to go home. I just wanted to play sports and I wanted to, to be somebody. I remember, um, I'll tell you a story that I don't tell too many people, but, uh, I went, uh, in, um, fifth grade, there was a sixth grader, Philip Epperson, who is a Hillsborough County Sheriff. Well, he just retired, but, um, I later met him when I was a Hillsborough County commissioner, but when I was in fifth grade, he used to, tease me all the time and um uh, you know just he had a couple buddies and they were real rednecks and yeah. my mom uh asked me out of the clear blue because i would always ask mom i want to go to the store i want some chicken or some hamburger i'm tired of this food i i'm trying to work out you know <laughs> and, like, i'm like right. reading these magazines telling me how many proteins that i need and everything and i've got one of those uh weight sets with uh that are filled with cement and um you know we got one of those from a yard sale or something. And, um, I was really into that weight set and, uh, trying to eat good. And one day she said, would you like to go to the store? And I said, yeah, mom, because we had Sly Avenue, which is really, really packed back then. And she didn't want me to cross the street by myself. She's a very protective mom. Um, yeah. and she lives in this house right now. So, um, I said, uh, Mom, I'll cross the street. Da, 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 da. I'll make sure I'm careful. I can't believe you can't trust me. Yeah. Anyway, she went through all this and she hands, I'm waiting for her to hand me money and she hands me this coupon. So, Sean, when she hands me this coupon, I, I just kind of looked at her and she said, Don't worry, just give that to the lady and this will be more than enough to pay for what you have on your grocery list. Make sure you get everything on the grocery list and um, she'll give you another coupon back. Don't forget to get that. And I said, okay. So I went to the store. I was happy. I didn't think nothing of it. We made sure I got some chicken, hamburger, all, everything that was on the list. And then back then they just had cash registers. So I'm watching to make sure the lady doesn't cheat my mom on the price and brings it in right and everything. And 
all of a sudden I hear, hey, look, it's Blair. Look, hey, and I hear some laughing behind me. And it's this guy, uh, uh, Steve Epperson, and his two cronies. And now I'm kind of getting embarrassed because the lady tells me what the price is. I forgot what that was. But anyway, uh, I hand her the coupon, and I hear all this snickering and da 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 da. And she hands me the coupon back, and um, I grab my groceries, and I get out of there as fast as I can. I know they're ragging on me. So the next day, uh, my mom goes to take me to Egypt Lake Elementary School on Sly Avenue, and she always dropped me off about 300 yards so I could pretend like I was walking to school and I could kiss my mom goodbye and nobody would see me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she lets me off, and I walk up, and there's a whole bunch of people in front of Egypt Lake Elementary School, and they're all huddled up in front of the school. So I And uh, I uh, see the spray paint. And I hear these people, Blair, Blair, there he is. And, oh, and I mean, the ugliest words you could possibly imagine. Blair is a poor white, you know, the, oh, it was really, really bad. So I ran all the way home. I never stopped running. I ran all the way home in tears. Was never going to go back to school again. And Mr. Agliano, who I owe a phone call to, by the way, I'm glad you asked me this question. Um, Mr. Agliano, um, came to my house and talked to me and gave me a great motivational speech, told me I could be anything I wanted to be and that those guys were just losers and nobody was going to ever bother me at school. And he was a sixth grade teacher too. And um, he was pretty big and people really respected Mr. Agliano. And so I believed him and went back. Nobody harassed me after that. And, um, uh, at least nothing to, to speak of. And, you know, he's still a friend of mine today. And I, I just uh, really grateful that I went through that very humbling experience mm-hmm. helped make me what I, you know, be the person, the appreciative person that I am today. Cause I'm grateful for every blessing that I have. You said you ran into this guy years later when you were uh, <clears throat> involved in politics and uh, did you ask him about that? I just always wonder what, what would happen. I was at, I was at a, I was a county commissioner, a countywide yeah. commissioner, and he came up to me out of the clear blue sky at this um, one of the uh, some meeting that I was at, and um, he said, "Brian," and I looked and I said, "Steve," and he goes, "Oh man," he goes, "I just want to apologize to you for all that stuff." And wow. I could, you know, Stayed with I, him all like, those years. Yeah, he remembered it all those years. That's mm. amazing that he did that. And so, uh, you know, we're we're friends today. I mean, I mean, no. it, it and he ended up as a police chief. As <laughs> not not the chief. He was, uh, I believe, he was uh, sergeant when he retired. Okay. Uh, but but getting back to that, uh, it seems like um, something that changed you, and uh, you know, I don't know, if, uh, changed your focus on you said to be anything you wanted to be. Uh, was it different after that day for you? Everything was different after that day. I looked at life completely different. Um, I just uh, realized that you got to toughen up and you got to, you know, kind of uh, stick to the books and stick to the balls and um, learn as much as you can. Uh, you know, keep your mind busy and stay away from uh, people that uh, aren't going to, um, uh, or that aren't heading in the right direction, the same direction you want to go in. Yeah. So I was able to do that because of you know great teachers and great leaders that you know picked up picked me up when I was down. Yeah. And, and you played all these sports. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but you had a favorite that uh, you know you really wanted to pursue. 
before wrestling became part of that? Well, it was football at first, yeah. and then it became wrestling. Um, right. And so I was going to go to the University of Tampa, and they folded football. Mm-hmm. Uh, wound up going to St. Leo College because the University of Louisville gave all of their scholarships away, which uh, when it was time to get recruited, um, I was going to go to Louisville and, um, uh, well, Tampa, then Louisville was my second choice. And I, uh, wound up, uh, since all their scholarships were gone, Vince Gibson told me to, you know, go to St. Leo college where I played football club football for Tilroy Morrison. They weren't NCAA. They didn't give scholarships. Um, they gave away, I got hardship money. The reason I went to Louisville as well is because they had the, one of the best, um, intramural wrestling programs in the state of uh, Kentucky. One of the best ones um, in the United States, actually, at that time. And we wrestled Eastern, Western, Moorhead, Kentucky, all all different kinds of places, although it wasn't NCAA uh, sanctioned. It was still college wrestling, and it still kept me wrestling until I got into the dungeon with Hiro Matsuda my junior year of college. So that was was your first uh, real training, was, was amateur wrestling. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That probably yes, provided uh, a pretty good base. Wrestled from seventh grade uh, with structured wrestling with coaches from seventh grade until uh, my junior year in college. So when did you, uh, I, I think that like right out of high school, I, I think in uh, like 77 around in that area that you started training uh, professionally? I actually started. I I actually started thinking about maybe you know maybe I might be able to do something like this. uh, Well, I started uh, Buddy Colt. um, What's it started out before Buddy Colt? uh, The Briscoes and Eddie Graham and Mike Graham came to one of my amateur wrestling meets, and uh, back then uh, Channel Thirteen here in Tampa, Mm -hmm. there was uh, a guy. God bless him. uh, The sports uh, reporter uh, Andy Hardy, Uh who really took a liking to me because he knew about my background and that I was from a broken home. Uh, he did a, like a story on me and, um, Eddie Graham came up and introduced himself to me and, um, told me if I ever wanted to be a professional, that's all he had to say. He told me if I was ever interested in being a professional wrestling wrestler to let him know <laughs> so, well, that really stuck in my brain. Yeah. And, then we had been moving from apartment complex to apartment complex to apartment mm. complex. Um, and I wound up in an apartment complex with Buddy Colt mm-hmm. uh, and um, started babysitting his kids because he knew I was looking for any way to make a dollar. So mm. I babysit his girls and then I babysat um, uh, Fred Ottman's wife, um, his, mm. well, his ex-wife um, and uh, her sister um, uh, just did some, you know, any kind of job that I could to, to pick up a dollar. But, uh, uh, buddy talked to Eddie and, um, and Jack, and they all invited me down to the sportatorium for a tryout. So hey, Brian, how big so, of a, when you, you mentioned about, you meant, you, you know, you kind of throw these names out there and people, you know, I know the ears are perking up Briscoe's, uh, you know, Ottman that, uh, that I don't know if people realize what a huge wrestling community, that uh, Tampa area and that part of Florida was then. Oh, you're so right, Sean. I mean, it, it, Tampa was the hotbed of wrestling. I mean, at, almost everybody came through Florida, all the big stars, you know, from, from all over. I mean, from King Curtis, uh, Joe LaDuke, um, you know, just guys from uh, 
you, Oxbaker, you name it, they were all here. And you had your, you know, Dusty Rhodes and um, Jack Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe and Mike Graham and Steve Kern were your staple baby faces. And they, Eddie Graham just was into always feeding new heels. Yeah. And so the heels would come in, do their angle, uh, pass through and, and go on. And, you know, Don Morocco and I became great friends. Uh, uh, he kind of took me under his wing too. And, um, but, but the hardest thing was, um, before I went to college is when I was invited to the sportatorium. And so I'm with, I'm in this hot place in the summertime, um, Come, I came down there in a pair of tennis shoes and a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and started working out with Hero and we started doing Hindu squats and push-ups and, and then wrestling. And every time I, I knew how to amateur wrestle, so I'd take him down and all of a sudden I'm screaming because he's got me in a double wrist lock. <laughs> like tight yeah. and, Talk about how brutal that guy was. I mean, uh, you hear oh, heard horror oh. stories about uh, what uh, Hero uh, Matsuda was like. Uh, you say like you show up, I mean, I, I, uh, they, they talk about doing, you know, 30, 30, 30s, you know, these, uh, with, you know, you do 30 pushups, they do 30 pushups and you'd go on and on and on with these. What was, what was, uh, it like training under that guy? It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I say that without hesitation, physically, the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And, um, the first day I, Finally rolled out of the ring and I threw up all over and he made me go some more until I thought, you know, he was trying to run me off. I knew he was trying to run me off and gotcha. uh, to see how much I had in my tank. Yeah. Came back the next day, right on time. Did the same thing, same result. Threw up all over the place. Um, and uh, he kind of laughed. I forget it. He called me some kind of a, not so bad, but not a real kind name. Um, and then the third, the third day I came in there and he was surprised that I even showed up the, the third day and we went through the same thing. And finally the time came and I rolled out of the ring again and laid on that concrete and I'm just waiting, waiting to heave and I'm waiting, nothing's happening. And all of a sudden Mr. Matsuda takes his front foot and he lifts my chin up with his bare foot because he didn't wear boots. He just wrestled barefoot. Uh -huh. And he puts my chin up and he says, what's the matter, boy? You know, puke. And I said, uh, I know how to breath. Well, Mr. Matsuda, I haven't eaten since the last time I puked. And I saw <laughs> and I saw him turn his head and I saw his like ears lift up. So I knew he was smiling and I thought, oh, man, he might take it easier, a little easier on me now. And he actually did, you know, came the fourth day and it wasn't quite, I think I ate, I'm sure I ate something. I had to eat something, but I didn't. There was no more throwing up. And by the second week, um, you know, I'd get him in some compromising positions, but he'd always hook his way out. No matter yeah. what I did to him, he's, he'd always hook his way out. He was a tremendous hooker. Yeah. And he'd bring Carl Gotch finally the next summer. Carl Gotch came, Gordon Nelson came, uh, Bob Backlund, a bunch of people that knew how to both wrestle and, and hook. And so then I learned for three straight summers hooking. And out of over 100 people that came, um, Danny Spivey came, he left, um, uh, Scott Hall came, he left, I think he came back. Um, um, but anyway, uh, Orndorff, and wasn't there another Hall kid hanging around there? Some kid by the name of Terry Belia. Yeah. About a hoaxer, Terry and, uh, Terry, and he quit one time too, and came back and hero 
broke his ankle. And yeah. That's a true story. Um, it wasn't at the sport of toy. You know, they really, you, you mentioned about running you off. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't understand that it wasn't just, they just worked you out to death. I mean, they would hurt you just, uh, uh, you know, to where they, you, they would injure you to see, you know, they really wanted to run you off or see what you're made of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they hurt a lot of people in front of me and, and then uh, this, by the second summer, I became like the enforcer for them. And, um, you know, I'd have to run the people out, but I wouldn't break bones or anything because I didn't have a heart to do that. Yeah. Until one time, Buddy Colt came and told me, he said, um, I'm getting married to a girl named Lorraine and her and her brother is a real redneck. He's pushed his mom down the stairs. He's beat up Lorraine. Uh, broke her wrist. Um, he thinks he can beat Dusty Rhodes and da 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 da. So I'm saying, well, well, what do you just bring him in and I'll uh, show him that he's not as tough as he thinks he is. <laughs> and so, buddy uh, brings him down, um, and the guy's got a pair of boots on like Dusty. Has his uh, jeans stuck in his pants like yeah. Dusty. He's got a T-shirt cut off, but it wasn't a Dusty T-shirt. But he had the sleeves cut off. Yeah, right. A big cowboy belt on with a buckle and everything. He's about uh, with his cowboy boots on. I'm standing in my wrestling boots, and he's probably about six four, and got a beer belly, um, but a you know big kind of a bar bruiser right. kind of guy. You could tell he was a redneck. But what really got me was, uh, Buddy said uh, he tells him, okay, now if you can beat up Ryan Blair, who's a nobody, he's never even had a match. He stinks. He's sorry. He can't even get into the ring yet. If you can beat him up, then you can have Dusty Rhodes in uh, whatever kind of match you want to have. Him. So Eddie Graham comes. Eh, all the people are out there now. Gordon Soley, yeah. everybody comes all around the ring. And a buddy said, okay, you guys shake hands. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I, I stuck my hand out. And the guy goes, hockered right in my face. I mean, just blew a loogie right in the middle of my mm. face. And Something about that, Sean, uh, that's the first time in my life that I really came unglued. And so I wound up beating the guy so bad, uh, broke his nose and his orbital and mm. all kinds of stuff. And he's just trying to get out of the – these guys are cheering me on now. So you got to mm. remember I'm not really – I'm, I'm kind of out of my mind. And yeah. these guys are telling me to kill this guy. and. He opens the sportatorium door, and as he does, he he like runs into Blackjack Mulligan and trips down and falls down. And Blackjack Mulligan looked at me, and he looked at him, and he goes, "Damn, I'm sure glad I'm already broke in." And uh, I'll never forget him saying that. And uh, I just chased him out into the street at 106 North Albany and Kennedy Avenue there, and it, I just left him lying in the street. And I feel bad about that. To this, I mean, this day, you know, I'm sorry that went that far but it just uh he set me off mm -hmm. and, and and buddy colt's wife wouldn't speak to me until about three years ago really that long wow. she held that grudge against me wow but I, I i imagine uh not only was it a tremendous lesson for that individual but but for you too that uh you you kind of kind of saw that 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 was in you but at the same time uh you know, you learned you weren't that kind of person. 
Right. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm a true competitor and yeah. whatever I do, I want to win, but right. I, I've never wanted to hurt anybody. And, yeah. Except uh, that time. Just, except that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, a couple other times. I've, yeah. I think yeah, I've okay. been in uh, six shoots in the business. I never started one, but I never lost one. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Uh, so uh, this kind of, I would imagine, catapulted you along uh, because uh, then you really you started working. I don't know, was it shortly after that? I mean, you did some stuff with the CWF, and then uh, you even mentioned your first match was with uh, Pat Patterson and, and Ivan Koloff. Um, yes. So uh, what, you know, what time frame are we talking about? Because this is where it really begins as far as you, t- you right. launch this new world. We're in like uh, June of 77. Yeah. And wow, you're, uh, man, you're young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 19. Yeah. Uh, well, I graduated from school when I was 17. Yeah. I was probably uh 19 and a half, 20. Oh, okay. And uh, um, uh, a referee didn't, something happened to one of the referees. So Eddie Graham flew me to, um, to Jacksonville in his airplane. And then I worked the whole week as a referee, but my first day as a referee, before I started wrestling, I had a week of refereeing and I didn't know how to referee. And so I didn't really know I was going to referee, uh, until he just said it that day. And so I'm trying to ask some questions, you know, what do you do? He said, it's everybody said the same thing, you know, it's, it's just like amateur wrestling because they wouldn't smarten me up. You know, mm-hmm. they, right. Right. They, you know, they still had not smartened me up. Uh-huh. So I still didn't take a, you know, um, um, you know, we, we'd walk through some stuff, but you know, they would say now you were taking a bump at full speed. When you do it full speed, you know, you do it yeah. full speed, but we're going to walk through. So we do some little things, but, uh, when it, when it came back to being a referee, I knew what an a- amateur referee did when the yeah. shoulders were down at the count of three, they're pinned, um, yeah. three seconds, boom, you're down. And so it was, uh, Angelo, Pafo and um, oh godly uh, Vashon Butcher Vashon oh boy and in Jacksonville and they didn't tell me the finish or anything like that and I you know I kind of knew you know I knew it was at work but because nobody could take that much punishment yeah but anyway again but how, they were, how stiff was it though then you, you you said they hadn't really smartened you up but I mean how stiff was it back then. Oh, they were real stiff, man. They, <laughs> I, I'll never forget. Oh, God. After um, when uh, Greg's father, oh, my gosh, Greg Valentine's father, Johnny, came in as the booker after the plane crash. He was on crutches. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm always the laughing stock because I'm the young guy. So he's given all these guys uh, a talk about how he's the new booker and he wants everybody to to tighten up to be snug and he goes when you lay up when you lay a forearm in this is how i want you to do it he goes blair come here so i said yes sir so i'm just standing there and he hit me so hard that i just dropped to my knees and uh you know this guy still on crutches and everything powerful powerful man yeah and uh so, you know, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And then the first match rolled around. It was uh, Skip Young and I against uh, Ivan Koloff and Pat Patterson in a tag match for television. And um, um, uh, they uh, shikanned me, threw me out of the ring, and uh, uh, pinned Skip. And, you know, that was my first match mm. from there. This kept rolling. Went to Kansas City, uh, to Watts' territory, to not just uh, – a lot of 
a lot of different territories. Yeah, and you worked with uh, with Tri-State, and uh, I, I want to talk about this because uh, a lot of people have talked about working with Leroy McGurk. Uh, and and uh, we just, I had a conversation with Jim Ross, who worked with, when Watts and, and McGurk were teamed up. Uh, what was it like to work with that guy? Well, uh, Leroy was different. He actually one time tried to shoot me. But, yeah, uh, that's, <laughs> you know, Jim Ross tells a story of how uh, he wanted to shoot uh, Ted DiBiase. That he yeah, had, exactly. and he was blind, right? I mean, he was pretty right. much blind, and uh, he kind of got him to avoid that situation. But, I mean, I guess he thought there was no circumstance to actually shooting somebody. No, he carried that gun everywhere. And, um, oh, gosh, you know, at first I didn't know if he was – I knew uh, he didn't want his – uh, daughter dating wrestlers, uh, you know, the DiBiase thing was blew up and he was all upset with her about that. And so, and here I come along, another wrestler, uh, Mike invites me, Michael Kathleen invites me to the house. And so yeah, I'm no, he didn't house. even want her to be a woman. I mean, he called her Mike. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted her to be a, yeah, he wanted her to be a son. So her name's Michael Kathleen. So, yeah. You know, we're good friends even to this day. I mean, she's yeah. a sweet and well, she, uh, she was, I mean, during the time when I was with the WWF and she was uh, one of the ring announcers, which she's still very much remembered uh, for that, that time. Yeah, I remember when you were with WWF. Yeah. But uh, it, you, you, um, you got to understand Leroy is kind of bitter, you know, about losing his eye. And he's always accusing Dorothy of going out on her and mm-hmm. things like that. And I'm listening to all this family stuff, you know, family bickering. And, but the first time I was in the house... Leroy had never met me and Mike invited me over and he said, she said, my dad's not going to be there. Well, the car was gone. Dorothy was gone, but Leroy was in the back room sleeping. So I'm in the kitchen and I hear Michael say, Shh. and here comes Leroy and he's walking oh, with his hands in front of him. And I'm thinking, oh man, is this a work or what? Is he going to just kick my ass? What's, what's going to happen? And he's got his hands and he's walking and Sean, I, I, I promise you, he came within six inches of me, and I'm trying to hold my breath and not make a move or a peep because I know he's going to kill me. And are so, you working for him at the time? Uh, yes, I am. So I'm okay. with <laughs> didn't you? Didn't you know you stay away from the boss's daughter? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I like guess dangerously. Yeah, I guess you know. I was young. I was, uh, you know. 21, 22 years old, whatever. Uh, just, just young. Didn't listen, I guess, uh, as much as I should have. But um, so he's six you know, inches I, away I, from your face. <laughs> yeah, and so he, he, I'm just scared to death that he's actually gonna, he's actually looking at me, and he's gonna sucker punch me or something. And I can't lift my arms up. I've got my arms glued to the to the wall, like a, you know, like a a picture on the on the wall. And he just barely misses me and passes me and goes to the refrigerator. And I, I, I just slowly, I had tennis shoes on. I will never forget. I had white, um, um, kid, not kids. Uh, what do you call those chucks? White chucks on. Okay. <laughs> old white chucks on and a, a pair of blue jeans. Yeah, Converse. And um, so I, I uh, just kind of got out and slipped out and and left. <laughs> We didn't have cell phones then or anything, but you know, and something tells me you didn't learn your lesson. No, I <laughs> about that. I didn't, Sean. I uh, <laughs> so you were you were briefly married. Uh, I was married for a year. A year, yeah, okay. married for a year, and it, and that didn't end well. 
No, it didn't. Um, it didn't end well at all. Um, so I left with, uh, with my boat and $500 and some clothes. And I stopped at, uh, Leroy's Well, I wound up getting in a fight with, uh, Doug Summers and tore up Leroy's office completely. I mean, I just threw him into the walls and stuff was falling. Yeah, so this guy, we should give a little background. The, uh, Doug Summers was what was he was he was also a wrestler and he worked for McGurk, and he uh, got involved with your wife. wife. Yes, right. he started when when you know Mike and I. She stopped. You know, she would go to the towns and count the money and stuff, and we'd usually ride together. And I'd let Summers ride with us sometimes. He'd ask for a ride. And all of a sudden, you know. Mike and I are riding together and I find out she's riding with him. And all of a sudden I find out, you know, she knows we're getting a divorce. And so she's started to date Doug Summers. And I didn't like that idea, obviously. Yeah. So, so this is the <laughs> second time you wanted to hurt somebody really badly. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny show. So I'm anyway, I to look back at it now though, because I wouldn't, if it was something you didn't want to discuss, but it sounds <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what happens is I, I I didn't know what happened to him. All I knew is that a uh, few people came in and he was laying on the floor like lifeless. And I got a few wrestlers got me away and I left and I was crying. You know, I was upset. Got my uh, 72 powder blue Lincoln Continental with uh, got my, you know, boat went to uh, Leroy's house just to say goodbye because I had ca- just called uh, David and told him about what time I would be in and yeah. that I would pull over and give him a call so he knew and um, David Von Erich okay. and um, I just wanted to see Mike and tell her goodbye you know there was just something that said well you know I don't care what happened I just want to at least tell her goodbye and I'll always love her and uh, so how did David Von Erich fit into this? Where we see one of the well, well, David would come up and work for us, and okay. and and Kevin and Carrie, yeah, yeah. and that's uh, a whole other story, isn't it? Talking about the Von Erichs. Oh yeah, I lived with David for a year and a half. Yeah. So I just saw, I just stayed with Kevin in Kauai for three days, uh, wow. and ready to go back um, uh, in June. So, um, but uh, yeah, they became very very close to me, and. Um, uh, Town, and you make the so decision that it's a good idea to go by Leroy McGurk's house. Yes. So I'm at the house. daughter after you've torn up, uh, beaten up one of his wrestlers and destroyed his office. Okay. Yes. That's where we are. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so now I get to the house and I knock on the door and Leroy comes to the door. He goes, who is it? And I said, Leroy, it's Brian. I just want to say goodbye to Michael. He just cussed me like a sailor. And he goes, hey, I'm going to go get my gun. Da, 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 da. So I ran to my car. I didn't know what to do. So I'm sitting in my car now thinking to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I don't want to get shot. I know he's got that gun. Da, 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 da. He can't see me. I'm just all these thoughts are going through my head. So I said, well, I got to at least see Mike. So I go to the front window. I can't see anything. Go around. Finally, I get to the back window where I can see like the inside where the couch is. And there's like a mummy laying on the couch. And I see Mike uh, feeding somebody soup through this uh, full headed cast. And uh, Doug Summers (laughs) laying on the couch and he's feeding him soup. So that really kind of pissed me off. So I go back around to the front door. And this time I knock on the door and I, and when you walk, it's, there's like a side 
walk across the front of the house and then you turn left to get to the door. Yeah. Um, it's brick in the front and then you turn left and, there, and it's about six feet indention and there's the door. Well, I knock on the door and all of a sudden the door whizzes open and there's a gun and he opens up the screen door. And I, when I saw the gun, I automatically went around to the brick for protection out of that hallway area and he's got his car parked right in front of the thing and he starts going blam 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 wow see the bullets flying up right next to his tire he had (laughs) all over his hubcap uh on his lincoln continental and i thought shit man i better just go (laughs) yeah that was probably a good idea thank god he was blind yeah thank god he was blind oh Oh, gosh uh so i went to uh david von eric's house and when i got there he had a surprise for me i won't even talk about it but uh but he was just we became such wonderful wonderful friends and i just love that family so much well the tragedy that is that is uh that family has endured but yes uh, i said that is a that's an episode down the road i i would love to get a hold of uh of kevin and talk with him and uh, about the family because I uh, Carrie was an awesome kid. I mean, yes, but uh, so that was kind of your uh, that kind of ruined that territory for you, I would say. So yeah, I think that's uh, the first time I ever burned a bridge. <laughs> blew it up, uh, never blew it up. But I, I mean, I've heard stories about what it was like to work with Lee Moore and McGurk. It, it sounded like it was an adventure for anybody uh, who had that opportunity. Uh, so. Um, when did you first encounter Vince Sr.? Because then you started to climb the ladder. And I'm always interested to find out because, you know, Brian, there are, and even at this point in time, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of wannabe professional wrestlers out there. But there uh, are only the few, the the elite, that really, uh, you know, get to a level to where they could compete on, in a in a a forum like with the WWWF at the time. There were some other big territories back then, of course. But I'm always interested to find out, you know, how you uh, you climbed up that ladder. And how did it happen to where you got to the point where you were good enough to to go to somewhere like New York and work, regardless if you're an enhancement talent or not? Well, um, first off, um, let me just say this. I don't like the term enhancement talent because of this. I've worked um, on hundreds of main events, lots of first matches, just like so many other people have, and everybody busted their ass, and it takes a whole card. If you put a main event in a, an arena, just one match, you, that might uh, draw one time, and maybe, but right. it takes an entire card. Uh, from the first match, you have to have a good opening first match i was always taught this i've booked before i i know the wrestling business inside and out upside and down and it takes an entire card to to create a package a total show that will um bring people back time and time again and angles are done in the early matches to go into main events in other towns and semi-main events so you know when when you use the word enhancement talent, and I've said this to other guys that use that word, and which is kind of seems to be becoming more and more popular. Well, because they used well, to say really jobber. Was, Remember, I mean, jobber. Was yeah, it used to be a jobber, a jobber. Yeah, I, and well, I, 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 think hate, I hated that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enhancement is probably better than a jobber, but um, you know, everybody to me, you know, whether it was um, uh, what was a guy that got beat so many times here, Jack Hart. Um, uh, then he went to. Um, I never see him anymore when I have lunches. Barry Horowitz. 
Yeah, that, although there are a lot of them. I mean, Steve, but, Steve Lombardi uh, yeah, worked you know, for they, years. They worked yeah. hard. They worked hard. You know, the, uh, Johnny Rods, you know, all those guys. But, but the way I got to go to Vince was the Florida tape went to New York. And the, all the people in the New York area saw Florida wrestling. And Vince mm-hmm. Sr. called Eddie Graham and said, when, uh, when you're done with um, Brian Blair, I'd like to have him. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Eddie sent me to Vince and then I got along really good with Vince. Um, Hulkster came there. Uh, he was there for a while and, um, I'll never forget. We were talking in Poughkeepsie TV to Vince senior. Uh, Terry was talking more than I was. He was, we had to wait in a line and Vince senior was such a gentleman, you know, he didn't cut in line or anything. He just waited with the boys mm-hmm. and, uh, he, Mr. McMahon senior is, Time, it's time for him to pee and Harry's still talking to him while he's peeing, you know, cause you got your back to each other and we're all kind of listening and he turns around and doesn't flush the toilet. He, but we said goodbye. And all of a sudden Terry goes, Brian, look. And I looked and the whole toilet was full of blood. Mm. And I thought, shit, wow, what is golly. So we knew something was wrong with Vince senior and wasn't long back after that, the cancer. And this was what about, was this 82? Yeah, I think that's probably there. He sent me to Japan my first time in the year, 81. And then, uh, you know, I went went back and forth a couple times and always enjoyed it there. One time Vince Jr. came to me after a match with Mr. Wonderful Paul Warndorf that you can see on YouTube uh, from St. Louis. Um, He came up to me afterwards and he said to both Paul and I, and he said, I got to tell you guys, and I mean this, this, that was the best match I've ever seen in my life. And when wow. Vince Jr. told Paul and I that, I yeah. thought, wow, wow, how nice is that? Mm. And he said it in front of a whole bunch of boys, too. And How was influential was he with the company at that time? Um, you know, I really don't know, is Sean. It? It's such a good question yeah. because he, I watched Vince kind of grow with the company, right. Vince Jr., and um, he became more and more involved as his dad got sick. Prior to that, I don't know how much influence he had on his father. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be kind of more of a inside thing because you had Arnold Scotland, Scotland around. You had yeah. uh, Gorilla Monsoon around and, yeah. uh, you know, all of uh, Vince Sr.'s, you know, right-hand guys. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, then Junior would be there, but whoever, I don't know who had his ear the the most right but you but, knew you could tell he was starting to have influence with that with that uh that company early on oh, oh yeah and, and vince senior told junior when he died how to take over the wrestling industry uh-huh. he said through cable television you know if you recall back in like 85 i, I was in atlanta mm-hmm. and it, the tbs was the first uh station um to have wrestling that went all around the country right. and um superstation yeah the superstation that's right yeah. and so we started going tito santana and orndorf and uh tommy rich was on fire then wildfire tommy rich um, yeah. who was traded uh for a couple other guys made a deal with somebody but uh, atlanta wanted him and they made a big star out of him and mm-hmm. you know tommy just kind of uh great guy i mean i love tommy every time i see him but he just kind of you know every time they gave him a chance he'd blow it up his nose right 
And um, um, believe me, that guy was over like you wouldn't believe. But we'd go into Columbus, Ohio and to these different venues. And that's what Senior was showing Junior at the time. There's a long story in between there where uh, the Briscoes owned part of TBS and uh, they wound up making a lot of money because uh, Vince bought TBS for a million and wound up uh, selling it. Let's see, how was it? He he bought it for two million and wound up selling it back for a million. I think was the deal. And, yeah, he uh, got a lot of resistance. Uh, that's when uh, Turner started getting in, getting involved and and he just out of dislike. Uh, you know, he helped move that front so that he was pushed out. They couldn't get, uh, you know, placement. And, uh, that's, that's kind of how that went down. Yeah. I was wondering exactly. Go ahead. I I heard different stories. I heard that Vince needed the money for WrestleMania. No, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, of, uh, backstory to that. Uh, and especially that's how eventually Turner got into the wrestling business or whatever he used to call it. Um, but uh, you you mentioned how you know, and this is I mean you talk about you know Vince Senior. Now I'd always heard that he was not a big fan of Vince Junior's plan to take it across the country, and so not- that's that's interesting because you I mean you know how you know how it was back then. It was it was like mafia territory in a sense without the you know. Uh, whacking I, people or something, but you didn't you didn't encringe on other people's territories. And uh, you know, Vince uh, Senior had the had the North, and then you know you had uh, all the different ones. They had the Florida Florida territory, the Texas area, you know, Georgia, and uh, that's that's interesting. That you you think that he had an influence on him at least at least putting that idea in his head. And once a year, they all met in Las Vegas, and yeah. Leroy McGurk gave me a Halliburton briefcase with his name on it told me he wanted me to have it. And mm-hmm. uh, this was long before <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was in But he wanted me to have it. So he gave it to me. And uh, I had noticed that there was a folder in there with a bunch of stuff. And I said, Leroy, do you want this uh, folder with the stuff? He said, I can't read it. Just keep it. Mm-hmm. So what it was is I still have it right here. Um, in my awards room, I have uh, all the minutes from the NWA meetings. And wow. Vince McMahon Sr. was in attendance. And they would determine so like all the with. heads of the family would meet in Vegas. Yeah. All year. the heads of the family, yeah, Don yeah, Owens from yeah, Portland, yeah, every, yeah. you know, uh, um, Harley race and, uh, Geigel and O'Connor from Kansas city and, you know, uh, Bill Watts, just, uh, who, whomever, uh, um, Bill Watts. I don't think Bill Watts was on that one. Bill Watts and Leroy were still partners. I don't know if he went or not. I'd have to look at what names are on there, but the names that are on there would just blow your mind. You'd know every one of them. And they'd meet and they would discuss the world champion. I mean, you can see everything they discussed on the notes. So. Like trading talent and, uh, and, and I guess just to make sure everybody was uh, good with, with everybody's territory, I guess, in a sense. Right, and how the world, who was going to be the world champion, how he was going to be used, how much he would get paid, um, who was going to book him. Um, and, uh, you know, because yeah. during that time, it was, you know, Briscoe and the Funks uh, and Harley Race were the, were the champions. And then Flair came along. And, yeah. uh, but they would exchange talent, these territories, right? Because it was, yes. you, know, you didn't have the exposure. You couldn't, certainly couldn't do it today. But back then, you didn't have the, the television coverage that you have. And so you could have, 
you know, Bruno San Martino go somewhere for, you know, when his uh, whatever run he had with somebody and have him go away for a few months and have somebody else new come in that, that somebody else hadn't seen. Uh, that was that was common. Absolutely, Sean. It sure was. And um, they they did a lot of horse trading in those uh, meetings in Vegas. It's kind of ironic that I'm back there now with the Cauliflower Alley Club. <laughs> I'd love to see that folder sometime. I bet that's got uh, some interesting Sure, I'll have to take some pictures and send them to you. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Uh, but uh, and I want to get back quickly because you mentioned about enhancement talent, and and uh, to me that that isn't a slight in any way to to the boys that you know the, the men that did this because that's how you uh, were discovered, and and there isn't one single superstar who at some point didn't do that in order to get noticed, and then you had, as you mentioned, uh, you know someone like Barry Horowitz uh, or or Steve Lombardi who were made a living doing that because they were so good at helping to put over talent. Like if they had a new guy coming in that they were really big on pushing, uh, they didn't want to put him out. There was somebody that, you know, that he was just going to squash. I mean, you got to had you had to have somebody who, who knew uh, how to work out there to, to put the guy over. And, and that in itself is an art. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the old timers called them carpenters. Right. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's a term. Um, yeah, they, they called them carpenters, and then the term jobbers came from somewhere, and I never really liked that term. And because I always, always thought, you know, like, um, you know, I was no better than um, whoever was doing a job. Now we had regular squash. Didn't you see that though? When you squash got guys, right but, right? but let me just put this in right here, Sean. You'd have guys that would come in and just do three and five minute squash jobs, one minute, two minute squash guys. You know. To me, that those guys weren't in the same category as a Barry Horowitz or a Johnny Rods or somebody like that. If you know what I'm saying, yeah, or Mike Sharp or somebody that they yeah. would, have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they were guys that made they made a, a living doing that because they it was like you said they were, uh, you know, master carpenters. I don't know whatever you, you, <laughs> you call it. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, really, exactly. but isn't that uh, you know when when you were first with the WWWF, uh. That's how you, when you came up, that you really impressed uh, Vince Senior, and and other things went on from there. They sent you to Japan, which is a whole other different development that you learn uh, so many other things. I know, I mean, I know they sent uh, you know Terry over there for uh, you know to develop, and you come back here and you're you've got a whole other different uh, level to you, a different you know layer of of professional uh, skills. Absolutely. And I love Japan. I've been, worked for New Japan, uh, 25, 28 tours there. And, um, you know, they, they always treated me great. I've even got some of the, I think I've got four or five of the yellow suitcases they used to give us every tour. They'd give us one suitcase for each tour, a yellow New Japan Pro Wrestling. It was the ugliest yellow. I used to kind of not really like carrying it because of that color. But <laughs> anyway, uh, I wound up wearing black and yellow. But uh, it was... Uh, and it almost matches my my tights, so it's kind of cool now. Yeah. But um, you know, just to have those old things and think about how you know they when they wanted you to develop and wanted you to go from being a carpenter to to a bricklayer, uh, whatever you want to call them, foreman. Um, you uh, um, you know, you went to the different territories, and uh, they would help you do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I 
I was Don Owens always was always trying to get me to come to his territory. There were several territories that wanted me to go there, but I was always pretty happy where I was at. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kansas City territory, being there for oh close to a close to a year jesse ventura and i had adjoining apartments for six months and we used to ride down the road together and riding with jesse wow. is uh very interesting you know yeah. you gotta be a gotta be a good listener um, yes and, uh, <laughs> somebody asked me one time what was it like to talk to jesse i said well it's great as long as you want to talk about jesse <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly so i would always uh, you know just drive and sit there and listen and he'd rock back and forth and put yeah. that dip in his mouth and Talk politics, talk all kinds of stuff. You know, he always had the answers to solve it. Yeah. Always an interesting conversation. That must have been uh, quite an experience having him as a neighbor. <laughs> oh, it was. He had a little pit bull named Arnold, and I'll never forget. Here, you know, there, there. I was a tag team champion, Central States tag team champion with Bob Brown, just like half the other town. And uh, uh, finally. They work an angle with Jesse Ventura and I, mm-hmm. and the people were so used to seeing like the same older guys. They pushed a lot of older guys. And when Jesse and I, uh, Jesse did a tremendous interview and um, I don't know what they did, uh, but we sold the Kansas state, the big building out in Kansas city. And there were half as many people again, outside as there mm-hmm. were inside. And, O'Connor and Geigo and Harley were just freaking out. They were so happy. I mean, I, I mean, they were so, so happy. They were so happy they forgot to give us a finish. Yeah. And so Jesse and I are both still green. And mm-hmm. we go out to the ring, and I chase Jesse around the ring, chase him around the ring. Finally, he gets in, and he starts begging off, begging off, begging off. And I didn't know anything better. He gets up, goes to, goes to hit me. I block it and hit him, and I had never heard that kind of sound in my life that, you know, like the roof's going off. And so every time I hit him or did punch him or kicked him or clothesline him, back drop him, it was boom, boom, boom. So I just, we just kept getting that wound and we thought we were doing a fabulous job. So he takes off, goes out of the ring and I chase him to the back. Well, we get back there and I mean, Bob Geigel, uh, threw his glasses down. Pat O'Connor's got that smirk on his face and Harley's grabbing his chin, looking straight down. I thought, Oh God, what did we do? What did we do? And then, then they went through the whole tirade. Jesse, why didn't you stop him and get some heat? Brian, why didn't you tell him to stop you and get some heat? Get a whole da 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 da. We had to go through all that stuff. You know, they thought we, you know, we knew everything and we drew the house and I guess they were just leaving it to us to come back with a, with a finish that would want make the people want to come back. And we weren't yeah. that smart. <laughs> just weren't that smart. You're just dancing out there. Yeah. We just oh, wound great. up in a place that we got by, you know, God, I don't know how, how else we got there. Did you, uh, did you know back then, uh, just hanging with Jesse, um, just how great an entertainer he was. And, and I, I don't know if there's, you know, I, I didn't get to see too many of his wrestling promos, but I, I certainly loved him as an announcer. And I, I don't think there's anybody else who paired with Vince better. I, I, I know, and I, I had, uh, you know, my thoughts about how I thought Vince did play by play and what, but I thought together that those two were great. The balance the same to me as like you know Gorilla and and uh, and Bobby, 
I thought that I, they were a great tag team. Did you see back then that he had that, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, it? Yeah, he had the it factor for sure, uh, yeah. Sean. And, um, um, you know, I, I knew that he was special when I'd watch him do the promos and he'd come out with the uh, imitation superstar Billy Graham right. gimmick. And, uh, you know, he did it a little different. And, uh, he, you know, he did it good. And Superstar couldn't be everywhere. And, um a lot of people didn't put the two and two together that, you know, he was kind of emulating superstar, but he took off and did it a different way. And Jesse has a certain cockiness about him, as you know, Sean, mm-hmm. that, and confidence that he will let, let nobody entertain, uh, excuse me. Uh, he, he will not let nobody, uh, intimidate him. Yeah. And so I think it was the factor that Vince jr. Really respected Jesse for that factor that non non intimidation factor vince knew that he couldn't intimidate Mm -hmm. and um so they just you know played off of each other just like they were you know in in harmony and i I think that uh, that's why vince really you know uh, gelled so well with jesse just like you said i mean it worked there's no question about it um but but, let's get back to 83 now this is when everything is uh, is coming together, I, sh- I should say. I think, uh, you know, Vince was taking over. Uh, you were there uh, in 83, I think, that uh, for a little bit. And then you went to uh, – went back down to uh, – Florida. Georgia. Georgia Cham- Did you go to Georgia Championship Wrestling, too? Did you work with uh, – Yes. Lawler? Yes, I went to – I went to Georgia so what Championship. So what was going on then? Did you see, like, the, the WWF is is really changing drastically? Really fast. And I'm fortunately getting to watch the whole metamorphosis. And, you know, even when I, then when I came back, uh, right after WrestleMania one, um, yeah, with the killer bees. And, um, since Terry and I were so close, you know, Hulkster uh, was one of my best men in my wedding, him and Mr. Wonderful and my little brother to the woman that I'm married to now for 30, 30 years. So, um, uh, but uh you found the right uh, one <laughs> yeah finally finally so uh most of the time <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. but, but uh anyway um um what was i gonna say oh so um i would just ride on the planes uh on the lear jets the all of a sudden it went from the car and tuna yeah. fish with bruiser brody um to you know, jet styling with uh, Vince McMahon Jr. and Hulk Hogan. I mean, we were. So did we that? But, but did yeah? But did that uh, come together? Now you're talking '85 when you came back, and this is like you said, this is when Vince, you know, put everything on. Yeah, he he just and and it worked, and and you came in, and just as that wave started, uh, it was it was uh, Hulkster's suggestion that hey, why don't we pair Brian up with Jim Brunzel? How did, yes. that, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, it came about because um, um, Vince uh, Vince Jr. always knew uh, that we had good rapport. I wanted to come back there. I told him when the time was right. Um, I wanted to go get more experience and come back in a better spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was all for that. He was like a, a very strong supporter, and that's why you know I have nothing but good things to say about Vince. I mean, he's cocky. Uh, he's very assured of himself. Um, 
and um, a lot of people don't like him for different reasons, but all I can say is that he never cheated me. Mm-hmm. He was honest to me, and I never saw him do anything that was, um, you know, that was really bad. Anything, I don't have anything bad to say about him. Mm-hmm. He, he yeah. was very good to me. We, I mean, I never paid for a thing when we'd go somewhere, um, whether it was a, a Learjet, a limousine, food, you know, we wined and dined with kings and queens like Dusty yeah. used to say yeah. <laughs> before we used to sleep in alleys and eat pork and beans. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're uh, moving up into uh, big time. And uh, it was it was great to watch that transition, you know, from the WWF to the to the WWF into WrestleMania from, you know, just the New York towns and uh, the New Jersey towns and the, and the Northeast Territory, Philadelphia and all those places. They were all great, but they became electrifying once WrestleMania started and once rock and wrestling started. And, you know, it just uh, blossomed from there and it's never stopped. Yeah. And what was it like to go from, you know, you're working arenas where, you know, if there's 2000 people there, that's a big that's a big gate to when you see this all happening. And you mentioned at the top uh, when we started our conversation about, you know, it went mainstream and here you're going from, you know, these small arenas to suddenly, you know, they're doing very big arenas where you've got 10, 12,000 people. Uh, What was that like when, I don't know if you remember the first time there was a really big crowd you were in front of, but uh, it it, it must've been pretty awe inspiring when you, when you saw it happening. Yeah, you know, I, I I tell you, uh, Sean, it was you know being in in Tampa wrestling in the Armory sold out in front of thirty two hundred people. Uh, that was big time to me. And uh, you know, being we'd go to St. Petersburg and have ten thousand people in Florida still. And, and you know, back in the seventies, uh, late seventies, but uh, in the early eighties. But then when you go into venues where you've got thirty thousand. Uh, whatever Madison square garden holds and yeah. what a rush it is to work there and to, you know, to Nassau Coliseum, to Brendan Byrne arena, to, you know, Philadelphia spectrum and to all the different places we went to and they're all sold out. It's, it's an amazing feeling. And, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're out there in a modified pair of underwear and you're uh, <laughs> trying to, you know, to dance with somebody yeah. and uh, make the people believe that you're dancing good and that what you're doing is real. And, uh, you know, I, I I mentioned I call it the golden era, but I also think it would it should be called the tag team era. What do you think it was about that period of time and uh, that tag teams were incredibly popular? And I look back at all the different teams between the Hart Foundation and Demolition and Legion of Doom. And why were tag teams uh, so popular then? Well, that was, it was by design. Um, Vince and George Scott. Um, design that and uh, it's like um, you know when we came together as the Killer Bees in Brantford, Ontario I'll never forget that and I met Jimmy there and uh, George Scott says uh, hey, we need a name for you guys I only talked to Jimmy for maybe an hour and he said we, we need a name for you guys uh, something catchy mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to I said what do you mean he said I, I don't know just something catchy you know uh, think of something so mm-hmm. Um, he walks away and he says, by the way, you're on in an hour. Don't need a name. So Vince wants a name and I'll, I'll be thinking too. You guys think, so anyway, we're talking and something, one thing led to another. And I said, uh, 
Jimmy, did you ever watch uh, the Miami Dolphins, uh, the 72 football team? Do you remember them? They had uh, uh, their linebackers all began with a B, and they called them the Killer Bees. And, uh. and I always thought that was so cool that they yeah. were the Killer Bees, you know, because I was a big Dolphin fan, Bon Nick yeah. Bonacani and yeah. all those guys. And um, so Jimmy said, uh, the Killer Bees, uh, mm. kind of, you know, it goes, I kind of like that. He goes, yeah, the Killer Bees. And, um, Blair, Brunzel. Blair and Brunzel, exactly. Yeah. That's what Jimmy said, yeah, Blair and Brunzel. So, um, so uh, George comes up to us. He hadn't even left the room yet. I don't know if he came up or we called him over or what. And we said, um, and Lanny Poffel was sitting right there, and we said, George, how about the killer bees? And he goes, the killer bees, the killer bees. He goes, I like that. Let me see what Vince thinks. Mm-hmm. He comes back five minutes later, and he goes, Vince loves it. You guys are the killer bees. And Lanny Poffel goes, yeah. And he pulls up, pulls out a pair of yellow and black trunks. And he had already had a pair of killer bee trunks, you know, the black, the same ones we wore. We just designed them right after <laughs> ones Lanny had right there. So uh, Lanny retired those trunks and <laughs> we became that day. Hey, isn't it interesting though that they gave you that much creative freedom back then? I've had a, you know, you talked to a lot of people that uh, during that period of time. And I know it's nothing like that today, but you, you know, you actually got to come up with something. Uh, you had the the mass confusion. Uh, that's all stuff that you guys, you know, uh, it, it, on top of everything else, besides being skilled in the ring, you also had to be pretty creative in order to, to become uh, a popular superstar. Yeah, absolutely. You had to define yourself and you had to know what you wanted to be. And, you, you know, you watch and they let you do else. it, though. And, uh, and, you know, to be creative, I guess you just learn from the people that you're around. When you're around talent like Eddie Graham and, and Bill Watts, you learn to become creative because they're creative thinkers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll never forget the angle that I did with Jesse Barr when we sold. We went around this state and sold every town out for weeks and weeks when I, uh, Jesse wouldn't give me a title shot. And, um, you know, he was a little bit green, but he was, he was learning and he was a heel and it's okay when you're a heel and, and you're learning a little bit. And, um, he was still good though. I mean, don't get me wrong. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't green. Yeah. And, um, he has just had a little bit of tough times with his promos, which we all did. And until you find yourself and, right. um, and I, I kind of just admired Jack Briscoe and that style. And I, I want to just be the wrestler, you know, more of the wrestling, wrestling guy. I didn't want to be a muscle head, a beefed up, you know, steroid guy. Not that I'd never took steroids before because I have, but never, I, I think I took, uh, uh, six bottles of Deca during a six week period was the most steroids that I ever took. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see Tony Atlas, I got stories and stories, but, uh, one, one night he hit himself with, uh, six cc's of three cc's on each cheek butt before him and orndorff got in a fight coming back from uh, wheeling west virginia with tommy rich in the car that's another story uh-huh. orndorff did his ear off but um <clears throat> anyway um you learn um and you, you started learn- that story brian you got to finish it now <laughs> okay um okay. so so anyway this is and it kind of goes with what we're talking about it was yeah. the cable days and so now we're starting the cable days with uh, tbs mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to wheeling west virginia um, out of Atlanta, and it's Tony Atlas in the car in the fr- in the front seat. We're in a car. I'm driving. Um, Tommy Rich is behind me, and Paul is behind Tony. We get to the town. 
Antonia had been grouchy all the way there. Not bad, but, you know, tolerable. And Tony's mm-hmm. usually not so like that. I mean, I get along great with Tony House, especially, you know, now, since this thing that I'm about to tell you happened. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <laughs> he gets to finish, and he's got to do a job. And he starts slamming all the locker room, all the lockers, you know, the steel lockers in the place we're dressing at. And, man, everybody's just on their tiptoes, you know. They don't know what this guy's going to do. Yeah, and next thing I look, and he's got a syringe of test full, three cc's in one cheek, and a uh, thing full of Deca in the other cheek. And and the reason I know, he told us what it was. So he, and this is like more steroids than I can imagine taking in. You know, he's taken in at one time, than I can imagine taking in ten weeks. So Ugh. um, he's saying. Nobody can kick my ass but Andre the Giant. Nobody can kick my ass. Maybe Andre the Giant. I could probably kick his ass. And he's just going on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Finally, we get in the car. And, you know, Tommy Rich is really on needles now because he's Tommy. <laughs> um, well, when I, I got to kind of traverse back for just a second. When, when I first went to uh, um, Watts' territory, Orndorff was already there. Yeah. And, uh, Carl Cox, Killer Carl Cox, and Dick Murdoch took uh, Orndorff and I in, and uh, we would ride with him. And uh, Dick Murdoch had a uh, uh, like a big Pontiac or something with a long bench seat, and we'd sit in the back. And Murdoch could pull that bench seat all the way back, so we'd have to sit sideways with our knees together, facing each other. <laughs> and uh, so. anyway now fast forward here we are in the car coming back uh from uh from wheeling west virginia i had to tell you that first so you would understand what happened so um um everybody's in the car we're we're driving back and and paul says to tony tony's going on and on and really making people uncomfortable and tony says hey murdoch could you move that seat up give me a couple more inches of the room and boy, that set Atlas off. He goes, what do you mean, Orndorff calling me Murdoch? That redneck guy, da, 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 yeah, doc, doc, don't you right. ever call me Murdoch again or I'm going to kick your ass. And Paul says, you ain't going to kick my ass. You might kick somebody else's ass, but you're not going to kick my ass. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit. Man, this is gonna be fun. And Tommy Rich is going, <laughs> now, guys, now, guys, please settle down, guys. Guys, we don't need any of this now. He's really getting pansy-ish, freaking out. Okay. So um, all of a sudden, uh they're really into it, lipping it, and finally says, "Well, let's pull over, and, I'm gonna, and I'll kick your ass." Orndorff and Orndorff says, "Yeah, pull over, uh, beep." He says, "He calls him Beeper." Long story. So um, he goes, "Beeper, pull over." I said, uh, "Man, you guys don't want to fight." And Tommy Ritz goes, "Please, guys, please, please don't." Fight. <laughs> He's almost got tears in his eyes. And uh, Paul says to me, he "says Beep, you either pull over, or I'm going to kick your ass." And I said, "Okay, I'm looking hard right now." And I finally see a, like a bowling alley with these. Uh, uh, semi, the, the back of the trucks, not the thing that pulls right. the semi, but the trailers are all lined up uh, yeah. next to this bowling alley. And then there's a uh, uh, basketball um, pavement and basketball hoops. And then there's some grass. I said, man, they got to be able to find a place to fight. I said, you guys got to be able to find a place to fight somewhere looking right for here. A ring. <laughs> yeah, I said that, you know, <laughs> looking for a ring. That's good. Yeah. But, I mean, there's, there's grass, there's the asphalt, you know, whatever you guys want. So, uh, Tony jumps out and he starts 
you know, making his uh, arms go back and forth, pumping his chest up and down. And he's got a tank, a world's gym tank top on and his jeans and his cowboy boots and Orndor Scott on a, a pair of sneakers with no socks, a pair of orange, never wore underwear, Paul, never wore underwear, got a pair of orange uh, or red uh, um, shorts on with a, a uh, out of lack of uh, another word, those white theater t-shirts, sleeveless yeah. t-shirts. I hate that that term. Um, we know so, you just needed to for the description. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, what are those called? <laughs> but there's another, another term that's just as bad. So I won't use. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Those t-shirts without the sleeves. Okay. <laughs> yeah, t-shirts without okay. the sleeves. Thank you, Sean. So so now we're. Uh, uh, I'm I'm ready to watch. I want to see what happens. You know, I've already seen Paul in action, and I know I mean I know what Paul could do, and uh, had no idea what Tony could do. So uh, Tommy's uh, screaming so bad now he's starting to cry. You know, I won't even go into his hot pitch scream and all that, but it was it was brutal. And all of a sudden, the two bulls hooked up, and um, uh, Paul bellied. He, Tony went to hit Paul. Paul went behind him, bellied it back belly to back them right on the cement Ooh. and they rolled around and all of a sudden I heard ah you cheated ah and Tony Atlas has got his ear and all of a sudden Arndorf goes and spits out a big old piece of flesh and Jeez. Tommy Ritz grabs it and goes oh my god it's an ear it's an ear oh god he bit his ear off and he's like crying to death and, and Atlas is screaming Paul I can't believe you bit my ear off god dang it that's cheating there's no rules in fights yeah. never told you there was a rule in a fight he said get up you pussy and da, 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 da. But, so Alice never got up we had to go to a hospital and uh, to make a long story short we, we dropped Tony off at the hospital s- stayed till he got settled in took off um, met uh, the next day he never showed up at TV never showed back up in the territory the next time we saw Atlas was in New York and he was as nice as could be to both of us yeah. Did he have his ear back on, or are they not, yeah, they, they, not they, able to salvage they, they went, it? He had plastic on? surgery. Yeah, they had his ear <laughs> at the hospital. Tommy, <laughs> Put that on ice. Tommy had the ear in a, in a, okay. uh, in a uh, little, uh, no, not a bag. He had it in like a McDonald's or a Burger King <laughs> uh, napkin. <laughs> Yeah, we often get sidetracked. That that was well. That was worth going off the tracks. Uh, really, that's that's awesome, Brian. Okay, so uh, I want to get back to when uh, you and uh, uh, Jim Brunzel, uh, you became part of this. We were talking about the tag teams and why they were just uh, tremendously popular. Uh, you don't see near as many tag teams anymore, and even uh, it just seemed to taper off. But during that time, it really was. They, I, that, that they were. I don't know, maybe the dominant uh, entertaining force. Of course, we had some big superstars, but tag teams were a huge part of it, too. Huge, huge, big time. I mean, the tag team division, that's why we could run uh, three towns. At one time, we were running three towns at night. Um, and, you know, there were six prevalent tag teams, you know, Demolition, uh, Axe and Smash. You had the uh, Islanders. You had, um you know, uh, Martel and Zing. Yeah. Uh, just so uh, many. Rougeau's, uh, yeah. yeah, a lot, a lot. And um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed working with every single team that we worked with. I mean, the, we unfortunately, we were stuck with Sheik and Volkov most of the time. Uh-huh. And they got the most heat, actually. But that you couldn't make a comeback on them. I yeah. mean, 
it's like impossible to make a comeback on him because you hit, and I love Nikolai. Nikolai, you can't help but love Nikolai. Yeah. I mean, you hit Nikolai with a clothesline, and the first thing he does is lands on his hand, his hip, then his knees, his butt, then his back. You know, it's like a four-move bump instead of just taking a bump. <laughs> and, and, it, and then you got to lift him back up rather than him feeding you. Same yeah. thing with sheet, to lift yeah. the sheet up for, you know, for an ass bump. You know, it's like, a, you know, you got to really shoot to lift him up. Yeah. And so that makes it very difficult to make a good comeback on a team. Like you could work with uh, uh, Brutus and Greg or, you know, with any one of the other teams and just have them a crazy comeback right. uh, but with Sheik and Volkov it was you had to get very creative and, and so what were some of the teams that you really liked to work with that you felt like you had some tremendous matches with oh without a doubt the Hart Foundation Hart Foundation yeah I was going to say Brett and I just got along great him and I would call the whole match I mean we would sit down and put the whole match together he had that great psychology from um, Calgary and I had that Florida psychology and mm-hmm. matches together and uh, Jim and Jim would both, you know, input what they wanted to do and until we came up with things that would just really rock. I mean, a lot of people go back to the um, during the Saturday night main event time with Dick Ebersol. Uh, when we, when yeah. we were in L.A. in the Heart Foundation and we used the mass confusion to beat them um, for our, our next title shot against them. And um, that was one of the highest rated segments on Saturday night main event to that date for that year yeah wow and that was i mean you guys you you guys i I don't even know how many times you stepped in the ring together but those matches were definitely uh legendary uh and for some reason you know there were tag teams that just clicked and when you guys were in there with them really there was no question about it it was always a a tremendous matchup were there were there others that you liked also that I mean, was yeah, it tougher I, to work against the bigger guys when you would uh, not Sheik and Volkov necessarily, but you know, uh, you know, some of these other big te- tag teams when uh, like Demolition, no, I mean, Demolition, right? They were easy to work with and mm-hmm. uh, gave us great comebacks, and it was always fun. And you know, they didn't care if they did a job or we didn't care if we did a job. I mean, it was just uh, we'd work together and uh, and we'd always have a good match. I don't think we ever had a bad match. Yeah. Uh, uh, Demolition. And, um, you know, Jimmy has the same philosophy as I do. You know, I mean, he got, you know, once we split up and he had to stay there because, you know, he was going through some tough times, Jimmy, as a family and kids and all that. And I was single, so it was much easier for me. I mean, our biggest payoff um, was WrestleMania 3, 35000 bucks mm. for one night, which was, you know, a big deal back then to make 35000 bucks in a night. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, I saved my money and, um, when I was done, I was done and I just gave Vince, I said, you know, I want to go do something else, uh, for a while. And that's when I started, went back home and opened up gold's gyms and I had my deal with Japan. So mm-hmm. I got Japan and, um, uh, gold's gyms became successful. And I wound up, uh, having those for 10 years. I had a hundred 120 employees and i was debt free wow. and steve kern who i'd like to mention is one of my best friends and i sold him 20 percent of my tampa palms gym for twenty thousand bucks which was like giving it to him but i knew that steve had, he had learned the gym business so well mm-hmm. and you know i steve's one of my greatest friends in the whole world he uh um 
when I sold the gyms, he wound up getting a check for almost two two hundred thousand bucks off his twenty grand, and mm-hmm. um, plus he made fifteen hundred to two thousand bucks a week for you know three years. Wow. And I can tell you a lot about the tag teams just through Steve because he became the trainer. And, you know, I see Steve every week, talk to him every week. And uh, we talk about the business a lot and how the business has morphed. And he's really seen it from the inside. And I said, you know, to him one day, I said, Steve, why do the tag teams now wear different clothing? And he said, well, Vince does that purposely so that when he splits them up, they won't be recognized as you know, they're, they don't have that, that label. Gimmick. So yeah, from that yeah. gimmick, yeah. Wow. Right, right. So, like, I'll always be a killer bee, you know. Um, uh, but uh, I don't mind that. I'm just the killer bee. Now. So, yeah. when I wrestled <laughs> a couple of weeks ago in Chicago, you know, Jimmy came out to the ring, but he doesn't work anymore. And I still yeah. enjoy it once in a while. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that, but, uh, but you know, it's just amazing considering – the pounding you guys take uh, for all those years. To me, you know, I, people would always you know talk to me when I was working there and beyond, and I said, "Look, uh, the only way I can kind of put it into perspective is imagine getting into a car accident every day of your life, <laughs> because right. when you're working like that uh, and taking those bumps, that you know, the you can do all the uh, you know the lifting or whatever, but you're your body, your, your joints, your back, your knees, your shoulders, and people miss once in a while. And the, you, the, the injuries were part of it. And you had to go out and work when you were injured. And, uh, yeah, it's one of the, the toughest professions, you know, football players, at least they get to recover, you know, every week and they only have to do it for, you know, 16 weeks a year. Most of them, uh, you know, these guys, you guys were doing it. I don't know how many dates you could put them together, but I'm sure it was 200 and something, every uh every single year for a, a long stretch my the most dates i worked was i believe 70 the first year my first year in the business uh right after we worked in well i guess it was in my first full year in florida i worked three uh, 360 something times um during the year because we would do two tvs on wednesday yeah. uh, we would do double shot we work seven days a week monday was west palm beach Jeez. tuesday tampa wednesday two tvs then miami thursday was uh, uh jacksonville friday was fort lauderdale or another southern uh spot show saturday was either lakeland or um uh, st petersburg and sunday was either a double shot in ocala and the eddie graham sports uh center in orlando or just the sports center in Orlando. So you're working, you know, nine, nine, ten times every single week. And you're never off. Christmas was a big day. Um, Thanksgiving yeah. was a big day. And yeah. it's this, you know, as long as you're not hurt, you're working. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you, uh, uh, you talk about that kind of schedule, but there may not have been as many uh dates in the ring but when you were with the the wwf and it's uh across the country you guys are crisscrossing all over the place how difficult to schedule was that uh between the flights the uh you know the the cars the hotels the finding a gym then getting to the venue uh 
Uh, how, and how tough a, a run was that to do? Well, you you really just said it, Sean. I mean, that's exactly what we did. It was planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, no, uh, I mean, although we really didn't take a train, I never did anyway, uh, but uh, it was either the airplane or an automobile, and you would get to the gym, work out, and um, worrying about eating in between, and then uh, getting to the show, and, you know, make sure you go uh, grab a drink somewhere, and, um Fortunately, uh, one thing having Jimmy as a partner was he liked to watch sports on television and split a six-pack, and so that was uh, pretty mild, and uh, he was pretty pretty good for me to hang around with. Uh, not that I did that all the time. But, yeah. <laughs> um, it was. Uh, I, I think most people, if they tr- tried it and weren't raised in that business, that you couldn't do it. I mean, it's just it's. It's, it's brutal. I mean, I've had over a dozen operations where I've been put to sleep. I've had uh, four knee operations till I got a new knee. Wrestled in the three days after I had an orthoscopic surgery in um, Puerto Rico in a driving rainstorm. And um, uh, like I said, uh, I had my knee replaced, had my quad torn all the way off my, my, uh, my left leg. I've had... Um, a bottle stabbed through my right hand accidentally by Eric the Red, went all the way through my hand. I have no more feeling in my hand. I tore three tendons in Hiroshima Jeez. against uh, Orndorff and Big John Studd and I were working against Tatsumi Fujinami and Kido and Ayanoki. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they told me if I went to a doctor in Hiroshima, I mean, the boys were ribbing me, of course, that they were going to sew my hand up and uh, I would uh, be, would be in a fist forever. They were <laughs> one at a time coming and just ribbing me so I wouldn't go to the hospital because everybody knew if we went to the hospital, we'd be there for a long time. Yeah. So I just wrapped it up for two weeks, and the doctor went to cut down to find my tendons. I tore two tendons, popped them right off when I had keto in the corner because the people started coming in the ring, and keto got scared and leaped when I had the back of my fingers and his tights, and I was choking them. He just leaped out of nowhere and pop my two fingers middle fingers Jeez. so yeah so uh, i mean it is you, you could go on and on and, and it is yeah. it's a very uh there's no, i don't know if there are many other tougher professions you could even uh, try and come up with but uh at the t- at the time though when when the wwf was peaking it must have just been mind-blowing to have been a part of like we said there was a there's very few who uh were at that level, who were of the elite. And as I mentioned, there's, there were thousands and thousands. But at any given time, that superstar roster was about 50-plus. And to have been part of that, that must have just been mind-blowing. Did you, did you look around then and say, man, this kid from Tampa who uh, you know, wanted to play football, look, at, look what I'm doing? Yeah, you know, I've, all, I've often uh, looked around and uh, – and said to myself, you know, while I'm very, very blessed uh, because I'm a very faithful person, I, I believe, uh, you know, that things happen for a reason. I worked really hard, but uh, I looked around many a times and asked, well, how did I get here? And um, I'm glad I'm here. And I'm very thankful. And it just, uh, you know, it worked out um, to where I, I still i am so passionate about the business, Sean, that I give so much of my time to the Cauliflower Alley Club, as you know, and uh, I, I just uh, have uh, a lot of times asked myself, and even even now, you know, at uh, 
you know, at 59 years old, I look at, uh, look around and, uh, when I see that I'm booked, uh, already at least two times during the next six months yeah. and, uh, sometimes three in different places, um, I think to myself, you know, I thought this ended and it's just like, it keeps going and it keeps going. And it's like, yeah. a, it's like a dream. I just love the business so much. I do. Yeah. And, and it's uh, like you said, there, not many planned well, but it sounds like you did. Uh, you saved your money. You got into politics. I just wanted to touch on that quickly. Uh, why did, why the passion to do something more to do with that for your community? Well, I love, I love the community. Um, and you know, I love kids. I think about my childhood and I think about the mentors that were there for me. Um, then I think about, you know, conversations with Jesse conversations with other people and, um, meeting different people in the political world and knowing that you have more of an opportunity to change the things in a political position than probably any other position yeah. uh, as far as taxes, rates, fees, setting policy. That's what, uh, for example, a county commissioner for the entire county of Hillsborough County, 1.3 million people, you handle a $5 billion budget and um, you determine all the taxes, the rates, the fees, all the policy for the entire county. I mean, that's, that's on your back. Yeah. And, so you can um, you can do good things. For example, I have uh, I have this in writing audited. I saved not I shouldn't say I I came up with ideas because uh, on a county commission you have seven seats, uh, yeah. four districts and three at large. Yeah. Those at large, and you have to convince three other people to go along with your ideas. So during a four year uh, during one four year period on the board, I was able to come up with ideas that wound up saving our taxpayers over a billion dollars in a 10 year period. And that's, you know, quite a bit of money. And, you know, I think about seniors wondering whether they're going to eat or have medicine. And I remember being poor and knowing what it was like just to have a dollar in my pocket. And I think about, well, you know, you know, a hundred dollars is not chicken scratch, you know, or, you know, when you could save people a thousand dollars in a year, well, then you're really doing something. Yeah. Correct. When you create so, more efficiencies. Yeah. Well, you were elected to county commissioner, and I—I uh, I think you served four years. Um, are you—are you done with politics, or is, there, is that still something you may may still step well, back into? I, I was actually going to run for state representative this year. To the only time I lost a primary in my life um, was to um, Jamie Grant, whose father is the senator, was a senator, Senator Grant, and he got caught taking a $40,000 illegal loan a week before the election. He beat me by a thousand votes in 2010. And, um, um, the Democrat that was in our race sued him for that. And so he didn't get seated for three or four weeks. And somehow I was getting ready to file to run for district 64 house state house 64. Um, and thinking Jamie Grant's termed out and needs some fresh blood. He had been involved in a couple uh, questionable situations. So um, 
I find out that he's got an extra term. Somehow the uh, Florida Supreme Court gave him an extra term for not being seated on time. And that hasn't been challenged. I don't know if I was going to challenge it or wait for two years, but I do see politics in the future somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think that's uh, <laughs> it's still in your blood. And I know you've uh, you've been married for quite a while. You mentioned your wife, Tony, and you got a couple of uh, sons. Uh, Brian, it sounds like uh, you know life life's been good uh, from uh, some humble beginnings. And you mentioned that you're still you're very active with the Cauliflower uh, Alley Club. Uh, and and doing and the WWE ain't gonna let you go either. I mean, the uh, you you still see uh, and all these other activities that are going on around uh, with with this resurgence of people who love that time that uh, that you were a part of. Yes, and it's it's so rewarding. And uh, WWE has been so good to the Cauliflower Alley Club, and mm. you know, we gave away over a hundred grand last year. And we don't normally name the people that right. you know we help, Sean, but. Some of us, some of them give us permission to, and uh, then the other ones that don't, uh, and we don't ask for permission. They'll just say, "Hey, if you want to use my name, that you know, you help me, I don't mind that." And if they do say that, of course, we'll we'll take advantage of that. Like Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who had stage four lymph node cancer, you know, he fell on yeah. some very difficult financial times, just like Bobby right. the Brain Heenan, and uh, and of course uh, Kamala, who went through diabetes and lost his legs. I mean, we help so many people, Sean, that it's amazing. And I'm the president and CEO, and I paid my own airplane ticket. I spend at least 10 hours every single week with the Cauliflower Alley Club. I I pay for every single thing when I'm there. Nobody gives me anything for free. And it's the same with all the board members. You know, you do it out of a labor of love. And when you see uh, Brickhouse Brown will be there. Uh, Brickhouse Brown, Rocky Johnson, who's a very close friend of mine, Rocky calls me up and says, hey, there's a guy named Brickhouse Brown in Tennessee and uh, or in uh, Mississippi, and you know who he is? And I said, well, I heard of him. I think he broke in in Florida, but I don't really know him. Yeah. Well, he's become like uh, such a close friend of mine now because when he called me, he had uh, just found out he had stage four cancer because the doctors were just giving him painkillers. His wife had left him broke. He had no money, and he's living in a $100 a week room. He... Uh, uh, he can't afford to go to a specialist, so he's just going to this doctor that's giving him pain pills, and that's it. So it goes yeah. from stage two to stage four. Yeah. So we get him a doctor's appointment, and the doc- first doctor that we sent him to wanted to remove his testicles. He calls me up and says, Brian, the guy wants me to go to the hospital tonight and remove my testicles. I said, where'd you get this doctor at? And he said, I don't know. What I said, well, listen, I'm going to have one of our attorneys look for a good doctor for you. And uh, I think it was Bruce Starp called around. Um, anyway, anyhow, he got a really good doctor, went in through his penis and took the sample that they needed to help him get. And now here's a guy that's been fighting for disability for six months and he's dying. Uh, the doctor said he might have six months to live. He went from 150 something pounds down to uh, two, 240. I mean, 140, 140, wow. um, 250 something to 140. And um, Reggie B. Fine called me up and um, uh, told me about him and uh, what kind of condition he was in. So we got him on chemo, got him the right doctor, paid for all that stuff. And he went from a death sentence to now he weighs 204 pounds from 140. Mm. And he's almost cancer free. 
Yeah. You know, and people don't, uh, I don't realize, I don't think people a lot of, uh, realize that, you know, basically all professionals wrestlers, there's uh, been exceptions in the last decades or so, but they were, they're independent contractors. They don't have insurance and, uh, a lot of them didn't plan for their future or what would be what you could even call a retirement uh, if they made it that far. And uh, that's what this organization does. The Cauliflower, Cauliflower Alley Club helps these guys. And it's uh, uh, how can people get in touch with uh, that group? And if they wanted to help out, uh, how would they do it? Uh, they would just go to caulifloweralleyclub.org. And you can become a member for as little as $25 for a year, $50 for two years, $75 for three years, or you can become a lifetime member for $300. And uh, you get four copies of the award-winning newsletter that year that's not on the Internet. It's four-color. You get a certificate that's suitable for hanging. When I was uh, nominated for the Men's Wrestling Award um, in 2001, I still have mine uh, certificate hanging in my awards mm-hmm. room and um, uh, you get to come to the reunions and our 53rd reunion is six weeks away in Vegas. It's uh, April 30th to May 2nd. It's going to be a blast. It's $125 yeah. for a reunion ticket, $40 rooms. You got uh, all kinds of seminars. It's just a blast. I tell you yeah. what, Sean Moody, if you ever, ever want to have a off the chart time, you come, I promise you, you come to one cauliflower alley club event and you will never want to miss yeah. it again. I know uh, Lord Lord Alfred Hayes loved the Cauliflower Alley Club, and he would go out and uh, and be a part of those events. And I, it, it's just, it's a great organization because it's devoted to, to not only keeping these guys in touch and being a great uh, source, a social uh, gathering place for these for people, but also it takes care of them, and that's the the best part. It helps to take care of them. Uh, Brian, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. How could, you know, I always have uh, people get in touch with me after we have these conversations with, and they want to uh, reach out to you. Uh, how could they do that? Do you have an email address or a place that uh, they can contact you? Facebook, something? Yeah, I've got a Facebook account. Uh, they can go to thekillerbees.net, um, or they can catch me on Twitter at killerb1b. Um, Facebook, uh, Brian Blair, and a picture I have a killer b account uh there's several different accounts but my personal account is the one with uh nick bach we go myself and carl lauer as the cover picture in tampa and uh that that one's full there's five thousand. that's all they let you have but my uh fan pages i answer those two at the killer bees on facebook uh killerbees.net um and uh, I, I truly, truly enjoy interacting with the fans because without them, as you know, uh, Sean, we would be nothing. None of us yeah. would have a job. And so yeah. I, I appreciate them. They're my friends. And that's what's so special about Cauliflower Alley Club. You know, you got a thousand members and they all converge in Vegas uh, for, you know, it's supposed to be three days, but it, uh, some people stay for a week. I usually stay for a week. And, uh, you know, we all become like family, and you see all your old colleagues. I mean, there'll be 300 different wrestlers there. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's an amazing time. It's an amazing uh, organization to belong to, uh, caulifloweralleyclub.org. promise you, go one time. You'll, you'll never want to miss again. We get $40 room rates for our people. Yeah. Discount budget rental cars. I mean, the uh, Hoover Dam's less than 30 minutes away. The Grand Canyon's a little over two hours away. You can make a whole vacation out of it, bring the family. But uh, yeah. we only allow nice people. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to think because you were basically, you were a killer bee pretty much your whole your career. 
And that, but that run with the WWF was about three years. And, uh, I think a lot of people would love to seen this, the straps around your waist, but, uh, Regardless, you guys were part of a, a, a great era and, and remain, I know, one of the, the favorites among the tag teams in the WWF. Yeah, I, you know, I know um, we were promised the belts three times, and that's why I finally left uh, when the third time Vince promised us the belts and we didn't get them. Uh, and I saw Strike Force coming in, uh, who had already been in, and uh, another team um, – uh, came in, I can't think right the second, but uh, I saw the writing on the wall and I wasn't going to sit there and uh, not be the champion. So yeah. uh, Vince just didn't get along with Brunzel, Brun- uh, Brunzy. I, I, you know, Brunzy loved to argue with him and uh, just, you know, it's just, you know, Jimmy's a good guy. Don't get me wrong. He's a tremendous guy, but he'll tell you, he'll be the first one to tell you that he hates Vince. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what will happen in the future. We'll see. But fortunately, I get along great with Vince, and uh, I appreciate everything that he did for uh, me, my family, and all the fans out there. Yeah, and regardless, uh, many of those moments in the ring with those uh, with the Hart Foundation and those other matches uh, remain uh, legendary forever. So, uh, Brian, oh, forever, thank you so forever. much for joining us here on Primetime, and uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, it's been a real blast. I uh, appreciate it so much. Um, thank you very, very, very much, Sean Moody. And being on primetime was a pleasure for me. So thanks again, and just keep on buzzing, brother. Now, I wasn't kidding, was I? Yeah, you have to admit that that was one very interesting conversation with Pete Brian Blair. And uh, it remains one of my all-time favorite podcasts. I'm glad that we finally were able to bring it to all of our listeners out there. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it because, man, he is really, really, really an interesting individual. And, uh, you know, what what a journey he had through the uh, WWF and, and before all the <laughs> different things that he was involved in. The stories about him uh, when he was in uh, basically learning or, you know, wrestling school and then uh, with uh, Leroy McGurk uh, almost uh, shooting him. Good thing the man couldn't see very well. And, uh, you know, uh, what a career he had. And I really, really enjoyed talking with B. Brian Blair. Now, uh, I hope all of you have a tremendous Christmas or had a tremendous Christmas when you're listening to this. And uh, a great and safe New Year. As I mentioned before, we've got lots and lots of changes coming to primetime with Sean Mooney. It's going to include a Patreon membership. I'll have more details on that, but I promise you, you're going to like it. And, uh, you know, as I've said many times, you know, we don't do things unless we know that uh, it's really going to be good and uh, that you're you're going to enjoy it. So uh, and a lot of times, uh, you know, we, we, it takes a little bit to get it together, but we're, we're going to do it. And um, finally, I, you know, it took, it took them a while to convince me, but we kind of laid out and I told them what I thought would be great and they had some great ideas too so uh we'll tell you more about that next week uh we've got a lot of themed episodes we're planning them out now that's one thing we're going to do this uh, coming year is uh try and lay out you know uh, many of these themed programs and uh also guests so we can give you a heads up of what's coming and uh you know we want to be different we want to be different than any other wrestling podcast out there and you have to keep evolving to do that and that is exactly what we plan to do. So remember, we'll have our best 
of 2018 podcast next week. I want you to email me, please. Uh, tell me uh, what some of your favorite podcasts were. And of course, we're going to have a Q&A session uh, when we wrap that up uh, where you can ask me anything. And uh, just email me at primetimemooney at gmail.com. That's primetimemooney at gmail.com. Or of course, uh, through Twitter at primetimemooney. Like I said, big plans for 2019. In the meantime, folks, have uh, a great and safe new year. I'll uh, see you next week. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Mm-hmm.